0: I don't know how many of you were here on Wednesday. Did you enjoy Andrew's um, presentation? It was absolutely brilliant. So I want to encourage you, if you couldn't make it, uh, Andrew has recorded the two messages, and there will be a video link as well to one of the um, times that he preached. Andrew Ollerton preached it somewhere else. And we'll put the link up as well so you can get a feel of really what he spoke about. But he t- talked about the Reformation, talked about the significance of the Reformation and what we can learn from it today. And there were two things I'd like to just pick up on quickly. The first is he talked about Scripture alone, which we talked about last week. The, f- the, the solas, the the Latin phrases that the Reformers used, sola scriptura, God's Word alone, and sola fidea, faith alone. These are two kind of... Uh, banners over the Reformation. And so I would like to, as much as possible this morning, go back to the Scripture to give us an idea of how we can think about money, all right? And I'm aware that uh, often money can be controversial. I don't want to make it controversial. For me, money is a very ordinary thing. You have, you have money and you spend money. It's very practical. It's, uh, it's, there's no, it comes and goes, all right? And, and, and sometimes you need more and sometimes you need less. But I would like to go to the the example of Abraham again, because Abraham is the great person of faith of the Old Testament. He is the person that Paul uses most to talk about what faith looks like and what faith means to us, that we are saved by faith. And we've talked about that a lot, uh, that our, our relationship with God is based on faith. As we believe God, we, that makes us right with Him, and we have a relationship with Him. And on that basis, we go forward. And so, so Abraham was the first example of what it means to be saved by faith. Before Jesus even came, Abraham was saved by faith. And we've looked at that extensively uh, over the last two or three years. So what I'd like to look at this morning out of Abraham's life is his walk with God and how his walk with God was imperfect, but it was a walk of faith, and his walk with God included having to trust God for money. And so if any of you have um, ever experienced tension around money or or needing God to meet a financial need in your life, you will know exactly what I'm, I'm speaking about this morning. All of us have had to trust God for financial provision in our lives. Yes? And so here we see that when Abraham begins to walk by faith, God makes him some promises in Genesis 12. He says, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make you into a great nation. I'm going to give you descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky. And so Abraham trusts God, believes God, and begins to journey with him. And uh, right up, I want to say, for me, that's an incredibly encouraging thing, that our walk with God is a journey of faith. It's a lifelong walk. It's in- in- inexact. It's not perfect. But all of us have to learn to walk by faith and trust God in every area of our lives as we walk by faith. And I've said this before to, uh, to the students recently, but uh, what I love about a- Abraham's story is that it's so imperfect, I mean, he does hear God, he he absolutely hears God, he absolutely trusts God, and he begins to walk, and immediately he walks imperfectly. And I I want to say that to take pressure off of you, this, this Christian life is not about perfectionism. God is perfect, Jesus is perfect, he has perfect faith, we are imperfect people, and as we trust him, we learn to hear his voice better and better, but our walk is an imperfect walk. And we become more and more like him as we begin to trust him with our lives. But it's imperfect. We don't always get it right. But it's a walk of grace by faith. That should encourage us, all right? And so, for example, God says to Abraham, I want you to leave your people. And I want you to go to Canaan. And so immediately he does leave, but he doesn't go to Canaan. (laughs) He thinks he'd rather go to Egypt. Uh, because there's a famine, and he thinks, no, I've got a better idea. God said I should go to Canaan, but I'm going to go to Egypt. So he goes to Egypt, and there in Egypt, uh, Pharaoh says, hey, I like your wife. She's, pretty, she's a pretty stunning lady, as they did in those days. And he said, uh, the Pharaoh said, well, I- I'd like to get to know your wife. And uh, so Abraham lies. He says, actually, she's not my wife. She's my sister. So he's kind of he's wheeling and dealing all the time, Abraham. He's heard God. He's begun to walk by faith. <laughs> But his walk is imperfect, and he's already making a number of mistakes. And as a result of that, the whole of Pharaoh's household gets sick. And Pharaoh says, what's going on? Why is my household sick? And then Abraham says, oh, well, actually, I lied to you. Uh, this beautiful woman is actually my wife. And so he has to leave Egypt in disgrace. All right? He's called to leave his family, and you know that uh, in Genesis, Genesis 13, he doesn't really leave his family behind. What does he do? He takes Lot, his uncle, with him, and he doesn't disentangle himself from his family, and only it's later that he separates from Lot, and you know the story that there's a whole thing that goes down with Lot and his wife as well, in Sodom and Gomorrah. And this is all because Abraham is walking by faith, but he's not really, he's learning to be obedient. He's kind of, he's not getting it right first time out. All right, and part also of Abraham's walk is that he has doubts when God says, I want to bless you, I want to make your name great, I want to provide for you fa- financially. He has doubts about that. And the, the, the example I want to give you is in, um, in uh, Genesis, Genesis chapter 14, verse 20. Abraham is led by the Spirit of God to do a most extraordinary, generous thing. Uh, There's this battle that happens in the valley, and Abraham is part of uh, winning the battle, and he should be given some spoils of the battle. And the kings say, "No, we don't want you." They don't give him the spoils of the battle. But in spite of that, he meets Melchizedek, who's a picture of Christ. We know this from Hebrews 7. And he meets Melchizedek, who's the king of Jerusalem. And it says in verse 19 um, Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was the priest of the most high God. And he blessed Abraham and said, Blessed be Abraham, by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hands. And Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. Isn't that interesting? Abraham is uh, inspired by the Holy Spirit to do an extraordinary generous thing. He's just won the battle. He's due some of the spoils of the battle. The battle spoils are not given to him. They should have been given to him. And he still spontaneously blesses the king of Jerusalem and says, I want to give you 10% of everything that I have. This is extraordinary uh, generosity that is motivated by the the Holy Spirit in him. And then he has doubts. Isn't that interesting? Sometimes you can be extraordinarily generous, and then the doubts come. (laughs) Then the doubts come. Oh, God, if I hadn't given that money, I would have enough for this. Oh, God, please uh, help me. I'm going to be short on my budget if I give this money. You see, Abraham had the same deal that he had to walk through. He had the same doubts that he had to overcome personally with regards to money. And I put it to you this morning that every single one of us, as those that are children of God by faith, have to win this battle personally when it comes to money. We have to really learn to trust God when it comes to money. If I give this regularly, God, will there be enough for me? If I bless others with this money, Lord, will there be enough for me? That's what Abraham, that's the battle he goes through. And, what, and here in Genesis 15, God says, immediately after that extraordinary thing with Melchizedek, God says this to him, an amazing promise, verse 1 of chapter 15. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abraham in a vision, Fear not, Abraham, I am your shield, and your reward shall be very great. This Abraham has this promise. And the, the word there for reward literally is salary. S-A-K-A-R in the Hebrew. Sakar. God says to Abraham, You have been very generous. Now don't fear, I am your shield, I will protect you, and I am your very great reward. Your reward, your salary, your provision will be very great. God always comes through for those that walk by faith. And that takes on great significance when you consider what Abraham has done in chapter 14. 14. And the point is that generosity was in his heart. Generosity was there because he understood his walk with God was by faith. This is before the law. Whenever we speak about money and you speak about a tenth, people automatically associate it with legalism. They associate it with the Old Testament. And basically what Abraham is being told here by the Lord is, I am your salary. Don't worry about being generous. I will provide for you. Don't shrink back out of fear. Give and be generous, and I will provide for you. And I want to say to you, every single one of you, that as we think about biblical generosity, of aligning our, our lives around what the Bible says, I want to say with confidence over every single one of your lives, as you walk by faith, as you sow generously into God's kingdom, He will provide for you in every area of your life. I, you know, those of you that know me, I am not a faith prosperity kind of guy. But I do know this. I do know that God has blessed me and provided for me in every area of my life as I followed Him for the last 35 years. And I can say that with absolute confidence. I've told you some stories. When we arrived, when we planted this church, we, uh, at the end of our first six months here, we were short of five hundred pounds. We didn't have the money. We were—I was doing some work. <coughs> I was doing what I could to provide for my family. And uh, through the, literally, at the end of the week, we had to pay our bills. We didn't have any. We, we prayed. Lord, please bless us, provide for us. I came down on the Friday morning, and on Thursday night, someone had put an envelope through my door with 500 pounds. Exactly. I don't know to this day who that was. (laughs) I don't know. God provided for us. You know what we went through with Matthew, our son, with the brain tumor. 25,000 pounds out of the blue, God blessed us with in the midst of that struggle as a family just to get through. God always provides for His children. God always provides for those that trust by faith. I want to encourage you, don't let your, your circumstances dictate your generosity. Trust God and be generous for His kingdom's sake. And I, as we talk about uh, these goals that we have, I want to just say this. I think something of the language that we use in terms of, of giving in, our ch- in church life is unhelpful. Uh, for example... Much of the church still uses the word priest to describe the person at the front doing the full time thing. I think that's really unhelpful. I don't think it's a good thing to talk about priests in that sense. It's clearly an Old Testament word and clearly brings about a separation between those that do what I do and congregation. I don't think that's that's biblical, I don't think that's New Testament. We are all a kingdom of priests. That's what the New Testament says. Remember what Andy said to us on Wednesday in the Roman church? There literally was a wall of separation. And the priest would take communion on behalf of the people. The people wouldn't even take communion together. And the reformer said, ah, all, the, all the architecture of our building must change. We break the walls down. There's now just a simple table. And all of us, all of us break bread together. All of us commemorate what Christ has done for us. We are all priests together. These are great things that we mustn't take for granted. Amen? And so I want to say just as priest is unhelpful, I think using the word tithe is unhelpful. It is an Old Testament word. Undeniably, the Old Testament does say we should give a tithe 10% of our income. And as I hope you've understood today, if you haven't understood this before, that was pre the law, 430 years before the law was even given. Abraham was inspired by the Spirit of God into a spontaneous act of generosity when he had to trust God for his own provision, and he lavishly blessed the king of Jerusalem. Just like that, because God inspired him to do it. No one instructed him by law to do it. It was a spontaneous act of faith in response to God's love in his life. That's it. And giving is always motivated from that place. And so in the New Testament, there are, there are many references to money, but it's more about how we should give. It's more about with the attitude than how we should give. And Jesus speaks a lot about money. And clearly, it means that giving was part of Jesus' practice. He regularly gave, and he understood what it was to live a generous lifestyle. And so inevitably, I've found, as I've led church now for nearly 20 20 years, the question always comes from um, people in the church, and are we expected to tithe? Must we really give 10% of our income? Aren't we under grace? And I, I want to say to you this morning, strictly speaking, no. But does that mean that we go back on and pay less than 10%? No. This is what the New Testament, I believe, teaches. We are called, under grace, to go beyond what the law calls us to do. We're not just meant to tick the box And say by law, yes, that's the law requires. No, we are saved by grace. We are saved. Uh, The law has been perfected and completed in Christ. We are called to much more than what the law says in every area of our lives. And I've said this before many times. The law says do not commit adultery. Jesus says do not look lustfully at at a woman in your heart because if you have, you've already committed adultery with her. You can perfectly obey the law and not commit adultery, and you can still lust after someone else. Jesus calls us higher, doesn't he? He calls us higher. It says, the law says do not murder. Jesus says under grace, do not get angry with your brother. Because if you are angry with your brother, in your heart you've already committed the act. Don't, the law calls us higher. So I would say to you um, uh, that, that tithing is not the ceiling of our giving. Tith, tithing is the foundation of our giving. We don't go back beyond tithing. It's our foundation. It's our bedrock. And then we are generous above that as much as we are possible to be generous because of how God blesses us. Are you with me? That's, that's becoming a generous people. We don't do away with it and say, oh, no, no, no longer plus. No, it's the foundation. Grace calls us higher than the foundation. And that's how, that's how Abraham lived. We are to become super tiredness, more than. That's what the Bible says. More than. By grace, it calls us higher. I, I, you're going to ask me, and you can, you're free to ask me, and do you live like that? Yes, I do. Helen and I, since we were students, have always tithed as the bedrock of our giving. Every single month, we have always given. And I have not earned exorbitant salaries all my life. So I'm not saying that you do this when you're wealthy. I'm saying you do this as just a bedrock of your life. And then we have, we have given in, in, in other areas of our lives, above our tithe. We've given to charity, we've given to to, to almsgiving, we've given to people that need to be blessed. I've given cars away when I felt like I can bless someone with a car. Do you hear what I'm saying? It's not law, it's motivated by love for God's people and God's kingdom. And the most extraordinary example I'd like to give you this morning, talking about someone's heart has changed, and because their heart has changed, they begin to live differently, is Zacchaeus. Remember the story that we know is is Zacchaeus? Um, he's a thieving, ungenerous tax collector. Yeah, isn't he? And we know about Zacchaeus. And there's a revelation that Zacchaeus has about the love of God. And immediately he's set free, and he understands something profound. And he understands that for him, the issue is his wallet. It's always been his wallet. And out of a place of love and response to Jesus, he does an extraordinary thing, and he experiences God's grace, and he begins to understand the gospel for himself. Remember, it's not that um, Zacchaeus doesn't invite God, uh, Jesus, into his life. It's the other way around. Jesus invites Zacchaeus into his life. He begins to understand the gospel's got nothing to do with him. It's got to do with Jesus. Jesus says to him, I want to come out of all the people. I want to come to your house today. Doesn't he? And he, he, Jesus invites himself into Zacchaeus's life. He says, I want to change you and I transform you. I don't want to go to anyone else's house. I want to go to yours. And so as he begins to realize that, his whole understanding of grace begins to change. He understands he doesn't deserve to be chosen. He, he, the, what Jesus is doing for, for him has got nothing to do with his, his performance. It's got to, all to do with Jesus' kindness and mercy. And this is the gospel. And then the problem in his life, his wallet... He does an extraordinary thing that takes him higher, much higher than what the law demands. And I I want to point some things out to you. He says, first of all, he does two things. First of all, he says, I'm going to give 50% of what I have to the poor. Half of what I have to the poor. That's way beyond what the law demanded. The law said, and you can read it for yourself in Leviticus and Deuteronomy, 10% the law said to the poor now uh, Zacchaeus goes way beyond the law he says no Jesus has done such a great thing for me he's transformed my heart he's living in my he wants to come be with me in my house my heart's completely transformed I'm going to do something extraordinary more than what just the law says as a good Jew you know what the law says 50% I'll give to the poor and he does you. let God transform your heart and my heart so that we, we go beyond to generosity are you with me? Again, Zacchaeus, the second thing he does, he, he understands that he's cheated people. Remember? He cheated all those guys out of money. He, 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 he collected more tax than he deserved to collect. He cheated people. And so, again, under the law, there was provision for people that had been cheated out of money. And you can read it in Leviticus five sixteen and Numbers 5, chapter 7. If you had stolen anything in a fraudulent way under the old covenant law, you had to pay it back with interest. And you had to give it back with twenty percent interest. That's what the law demanded. What does Zacchaeus do? He gives it back four times over, three hundred percent. He gives it back. Go and work it out for yourself. The numbers. He doesn't just that. He understands that the problem for him always been a lack of trust around money. Always three hundred percent. He gives back to anyone who's cheated. Does that? Does that mean it? So. For all of us, how we view our our, our marriages, our parenting, how we view sex, how we view power. All right? And so the key issue for me, for all of us, for me as well, is learning to see by faith that God is our provider in every area. That God was still his provider. Like Zacchaeus, and he was able to let it affect his wallet. And then the third one, in like less than half an hour, the, the other you know the story well. There's revival. I mean, every one of us would want to be in a church like this. There are people. And there's a sense of revival and just spontaneous stuff happening, all that shown us in terms of Ananias and Sapphira. And 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 why God is so severe with them. <laughs> they were wanting to be seen by the people as being extraordinarily generous. Now I don't know how that works, because for me that is before I've got a friend Finney who lives in Sydney at the moment, and he said, we should all print (laughs) t-shirts. I like that. In other words, I was honest. I gave honestly. I'm surviving. I'm actually doing what I say I believe. Are you with me? So I'm not pointing fingers at you. This is an issue for me. Every single time, every month, we have to go through the same thing. We look at our budget. Say, Jesus, if we give this, we're going to be short there. And we trust God to provide for us. And He is faithful. Always has been. So I want to encourage you with that. So I do want to just make one final comment. What I would like to try and help us to do is align our lives around biblical giving, not charitable giving. Understand there's a difference? Biblical giving. If we say we want to be people of the Word as a church, then we must align our worldview of how we view finances around what the Bible says. And the Bible says we are to give as a basis in our lives, the basis of 10%, as much as we can, generosity above that, into God's kingdom, so that His kingdom can prosper. Yes? Now, if you like me, I like to watch nature programs and whatever, and it must be the particular time of day that I watch television, whatever. But every time we watch television, there's always an appeal by World Vision or the tigers of Sumatra or an infinite variety of five pounds five pounds a month, and you can completely transform someone's life. But what I am saying is, if you start to divide up your giving and say, I'll give kingdom, what does it do? All it does, it makes local churches weaker and weaker. And I'm asking you, be wise in terms of how you respond to appeals. The bulk of our giving goes into the kingdom of God, and it should go through the local church One of the reasons is no money. People are giving into so many different areas. We need to, and let that not be true of our local church. Let let us encourage each other to, all of this I'm saying, Abraham, our great example of faith, he wondered at this thing. Every time God promises something to Abraham, on those promises, he is tested, and he has to learn to walk by faith. What about? (laughs) He can't have children. He's like going, how does that work? And he has to trust God. God says, I'm going to give you a land. He's always saying, well, God, where's the land? I, I, you know, he's, he's trying to, he has to trust. And he has to trust God for his finances. God says, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make you a provider and see it. Every area of promise in your life that God has promised you, you're going every single month. Every single trusting healing for my son, trusting blessing for our month. So do you. That's what it means to walk by faith. Yeah? And a good father, uh, the scripture says, the good father is not going to offer us a stone when he's promised. My point is, Abraham has this amazing covenant with God. God has made the promise before Abram even learns obedience. Do you notice that? Anything. And Abram has to learn obedience. And remember, right at the end of the story, those amazing words. When he provides the ram in the thicket, and Abraham is about to strike his own son, now I can see that you are my friend because you obey me. Absolute obedience comes through kindly hearing the voice of the spirit, letting it transform our hearts of that that 's an amazing thing don 't you think I have spoken with Abraham not as face to face as one would do that 's an extraordinary thing that comes through relationship, something out of the heart to what he says and so I want to encourage and trust God that God will provide for us personally as we are generous for assurance of things hoped for. The convictions of things. God wants to commend us as a church community. God wants to say, well done. I encourage you as we we go forward in the next two years, towards 2020, we're going to do it. Why? Because we are very clever. No, because God is faithful.